Hi, I'm Craig Turner, host of the Founders for Good podcast. I've spent years working in the tech for good space, and in that time I've had the privilege of interviewing inspiring impact founders, and I want to share those conversations with you. Why? Because these are the people leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues, from climate to homelessness to health to education and much more. In these conversations, I dig into why these issues exist, possible solutions, how the founder and their business is approaching the problem, and their best kept secrets on how to build a for good company. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Tom McGillicuddy is the co-founder and CEO of Circa 5000. After starting his career in finance, Tom quickly realised there was more to life than just making money. But he also saw the potential for using investments to build a better world for everyone. So, Tom left job security to found Circa 5000, a company solely focused on impact investing. This form of investing is where on top of risk and return, they look at a third factor, which is how does a company make money, i.e. does their product or service solve a major world problem. This ensures that money isn't being used to fund arms dealers, coal or oil companies that you might be surprised to hear still exist in a lot of portfolios today. Then Circa 5000 make it super easy and simple by having a range of products from ISAs, GIAs and pensions so everyone can invest their money in a brighter future. In this episode, we cover a load of topics, from ESG versus impact investing, to lack of financial education in the UK, to building a challenger brand, and much more. Hey Tom, pleasure to have on the show. Like as a as a <laughs> as a big fan of your podcast and also a customer of Circa Five Thousand, I absolutely delighted you to spend some time with me. How, how are you getting on? Doing well. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, looking forward to it. Awesome. So look, I'm always looking to understand a bit about the the guests and their backgrounds. Um, and kind of interested, two questions really, like what first attracted you to career in finance? And secondly, like what were some of the defining moments that led you into the impact investing route? Yeah. So the, the, the brutal uh, honesty and the truth was that my mum always reminds me of this. I have, I have a habit of making bold outlandish <laughs> statements and definitive statements and then doing the opposite at some point so when I was uh when I was young I was like I'll never move to London I'll never work in finance and then I did both of those <laughs> things um but I uh, I was never attracted to it um personally um I wasn't mathematical I actually didn't really care about economics or anything like that growing up and even at university but when I came out of university I wanted and my mindset shifted on this as a desire but I come from you know I come from we're going to come from, you know, working class town, working class background. The, my primary objective thinking about my career was how much money can I earn? Um, and so that was my initial thing. I wanted to be in, a, in an industry where I could earn a decent amount of money is the truth. And then I uh, got into that industry um, and started to realize there, there was more to life than that <laughs> pretty, pretty early on. And there was more to more to finance. You could do more with finance. You could... Uh, aim finance at stuff that needed to be solved and help solve it. Like finance, finance, and uh, as basically an accelerant to you know solutions to real actual problems, not just making money for money's sake. But you know, couldn't you make money and do something good? You know, at the same time. So what happened with me is I went through like a you know pretty typical like soul searching in my kind of early to mid twenties about what I wanted out of my career, my you know my my job, and it wasn't it wasn't a satisfactory thing for me to think that when I'm 60 years old, looking back on my career, all I did was optimize for how much money I could personally earn. It didn't really sit well with me. And I think it took me to get into a career where that was an option or a potential to start going, yeah, there's more to it than that. I'm not satisfied with that. Um, 
it'd be more satisfying to try and do something that, you know, something a bit more useful for the world. And then that, you know, that led me ultimately to this form of investing, which is exactly that. I think it's just using our financial services skills, our background in the investment industry and aiming at something positive. Um, and it's just something that I just don't think I'll ever get tired of um, working in. I, I say that, you know, if I'm ever not wanted in this business anymore or, you know, whatever happens with this business, I'll be doing impact investing somewhere else. Um, it's what I'll do until until the end. And so it's uh, it's become a personal passion of mine because I can see the impact that this can actually have on on, on real world, on the ground issues. Um, and so, so, yeah, that's what led me to it. Yeah, no, a lot of that hits home with me. Um, but I, again, left uni, didn't really know what to do, thought I want to make money, <laughs> went into recruitment, didn't really sustain me like three, four years. And I was like, this is you know not what I thought it was going to be you you desperately then want something more that will actually sustain you like you said for the long term and then you know my talent is in helping people find companies and i'm going to use that power to do good by helping people find jobs in tech for good companies uh, and i think that's what i'm going to do for the rest of my life because i just love the fact that i know that i'm helping mission driven people connect with these companies do something really special and, and positive in the world um to talk a bit about um investment and the impact investing space um I find it really funny because I think if you ask the average person on the street, they're probably like, I'm not, you know, I, I don't have, I don't invest, uh, you know, that's too risky. They've got images of like <laughs> Wall Street out there banging out the phone. Um, but the reality is, as I understand, you know, anyone that has a pension is, is an investor. Um, and so the question I have for you is, is, um, you know, where, where typically is people's money being invested? If that's pension ISAs, whatever it might be. And secondly, like, why is it really important we pay more attention to where the money's being invested? Yeah, yeah, it's a it, it's a great question. I think that the vast majority of us, um, well, all of us have a pension. Especially all of our generation now have a pension which is technically directed by us. The previous generations had pensions that were provided for them by the their employer, the, the DB pension, basically. So that they were they were they were given money to retire at the end of career, based on kind of what they'd earned over the career or, or some kind of you know uh, calculation based on that. But now the emphasis is on the uh, employee. Um, so you, you, when you start work, you get, you will um, be put into a defined contribution. It's called pension scheme, where you're paying in and your employer's paying in, and then it's invested in ninety percent of people, or maybe even more, ninety five percent of people are just in a default option for what the money is invested in in the background. And the default option is a bit of everything, you know, basically, as I would describe it. So you've got all every single company you can imagine. Um, uh, is is in there. So you'll have, yes, you'll have your big tech companies, but you'll probably have a lot of big oil companies, um, coal companies, you know, you could have arms companies, you could have a, any company that's a listed business in the world that will be in there in one form or another. And for a lot of people, they are unhappy that that is the reality. And I think that upon discovering it, what we see is that people want to change that. And so you can either, there's, there's two parts of that equation. One is, the, the current employer that you're with and the current pension you're paying into, you can change where that's in. So your your employer may have an option in a list, which means you can put it into the sustainable plan or the ethical plan. I mean, some of them will be terrible too, but at, at least it's a start. And then the, the, the problem that we try and tackle is that um, every time you leave a job, that pension pot just sits there in the background, stays invested in what it was in. And it doesn't move with you effectively. It's just it's just over there, something separate to you. So that that accumulates to about you know 10, 11 old workplace pensions over people's working lives. That is their money that they don't know where it's invested in, they don't know what it's doing. And so 
what we've been doing recently is helping people find them, locate them, um, and then bring them to to us, obviously, uh, and invest in them in, in, in companies that are doing something good for the world. Whether or not you do that with us, um, you you should take charge of what that what that money is and what it's invested in because it's the it, the, the the reason why we've become so passionate about it is because number one, it's the it's the biggest amount of money that most of us will have is that pot of money that's sitting in there sitting there. It's got a long time to compound and grow, and it is ultimately what you will retire with. And so you need to take charge of it as soon as you possibly can. Try and uh, put as much money into those pots as you possibly can. Um, think about things like fees, but think about what it's doing for the world as well at the same time. And so I think this form of investing really ties in nicely with pensions because you're basically investing into a future you want to retire into. So you, so you want to align your kind of money that you're that you're building for your retirement into companies that are actually building a version of retirement that you think is is a decent place to retire into. And so it's uh, that problem, that old abandoned workplace pension problem is huge in the UK. It's like something like 20 grand per person is lost and unclaimed at the moment. Um, some people it will be way more. Um, it's tens of billions, millions of people affected. And I think only really now has it started to become properly talked about. Um, and so it's it's something that everyone can do to help their own financial future. It also makes you feel a little bit richer. If you just found 20 grand that you didn't know you had that was yours, it makes you feel a little bit better about your, your personal finances. And so um, it's a really quick win. And then you can direct it to, to companies that are doing something good at the same time. Yeah, because I'm probably that stereotypical person, not that interested in like the finance side of things. And I actually use your pension tracker to track down where mine stuff were. And I was a bit shocked by how much was in one of them. Um, but also looking to like what they were being used in and like investing didn't sit that well with me. Um, I, I, to, I don't want to put you on the spot because I don't know if you'll have a figure for this, but in terms of like UK, the size in terms of like money in UK pensions in the UK, have you got any figure you can share in terms of like how much money that really is? Yeah, I think it's. It's in the well, it's in the hundreds of billions easily. Um, I think that that defined contribution market is is four hundred, six hundred billion. I think around that around that point, that's the addressable market. There's obviously the old pension market, which is probably in the which is probably more in the trillions, because that's all the all the previous stats, the other pensions. I mean, they need to be changed as well. Um, there's just less an individual can do to change them because they're managed by the company versus managed by the individual. But it's massive. It's a huge problem. So I think. If you could nudge that money to be ten percent better, you know, you'd have yeah. a much bigger impact on things like climate change, on things like you know, healthcare, education, housing, all the areas that that people care passionately about. The main thing you can do is look at where your pension money is and try and change where it's invested. Hundred uh, percent. Yeah, that that was going to be my point. Like, just imagine. I mean, it's a sliver of that would be a huge thing. But if like we get to put where hundred percent of that was being used in impact investment the world will be in a much better state. Um, next thing, which I know it's something you talked a lot about in your podcast, uh, quite passionate about, <laughs> and uh, could probably spend like, the next few days chatting about. Um, but, you know, as a business owner, as someone who's looked into like where you know, my money's being saved or invested, um, and you're trying to look for what might be classed as like green ethical options, the thing that gets thrown at you by a lot of companies is ESG. Um, so what I was going to hope you could just bring, <laughs> uh, briefly explain is like, what is impact investing and how does that differ from ESG investing? <clears throat> yeah, as you might tell from the podcast, I'm a passionate <laughs> critic of uh, ESG investing. I think I've, in the past I've said I hate it, but I probably wouldn't uh, necessarily say that right now. But it's the two very, very, they get lumped together, but the two very, very different forms of investing. Um, impact investing is all about 
investing in businesses whose business model, the thing they sell, the product or service they sell, is directly linked to some kind of major world problem that you're trying to address in one way or another. I mean, renewable energy companies are always a really easy example. Uh, and what what proper impact investors try and do is identify companies where 100% of their revenue is from one or more of these problems. So this is directly linked. So it's, it's locked into the business. It's what they're doing to the world. It's what they're selling. And that's the way in which you can really, that's the first step in looking at what a proper impact business is, which is you know, the products and services they sell. And then you do loads more other analysis, but that's the first step. Whereas ESG, environmental social governance investing, really isn't a form of investing. It's just a, a, a risk analysis framework. And so you can, um, an example is if you look at an ESG fund, Coca-Cola might be the top holding in that fund. <clears throat> it would never be a top holding in impact fund because fizzy drinks are not solving a world problem. But the, the reason why it's in an ESG um, uh, fund, or for, as an example, is it will score very high on the ES and the G. Good governance, big corporate governance structure, very little S footprint, you know, the, the supply chain's probably well managed, et cetera, et cetera. And there's very little potential environmental risk to the business. And so it's all about uh, what the world is doing to the business, whereas impact investing is what the business is doing to the world. And so what you, what you've, what you see in ESG investing is it's a, a checklist item for someone who's investing in a business to say that they've assessed whether something along the ES or G line would uh, be a negative risk posed to a company's stock price performance. And so if you think of it like that, any company can be justified in an ESG portfolio because you could go, well, we've we've looked at those risks. Yes, there's some risks, but we think that the potential stock price performance is better even with those E and S and G risks. And so we'll still go and invest in in a company. An example is this. This is actually a real example. I won't name names of things, but the... uh, there was uh, a, a client questioned why in a portfolio that said that e- integrated ESG, there was an arms manufacturer that had cluster munitions exposure in their, in their revenue line. And the reason why that was justified was because, um, yes, that's a potential negative, you know, so let's say an S risk, you know, but, it's, it, but the, the stock price was so low that on a valuation basis, the portfolio manager felt like there was still a great potential investment return opportunity. And so that was really early on in my in my career, and it made me realize that this is not a moral, ethical framework. This is just another way of assessing a stock price future performance with some additional risk factors. Really, ESG should just be called risk factor you know investing because it's it's just it, it's just what everyone should do anyway. I mean, <clears throat> if you're looking at a business that you, you think has governance risk, <clears throat> You need to factor that in to what could happen to the stock price in the future. So the, the the worst thing that's happened for our form of investing impact is that ESG and impact have started to be grouped together, but they're so, so different. They can be used together. Like we do look at some of the ESG risks. Of course yeah. we do, because it's proper proper investment hygiene, but it's not making any judgment about what the product and service is doing and what they're selling as a business. It's just a, an additional t- a tick box. And the, the worst thing that's happened is that the marketing teams of these big asset managers and big you know, wealth managers wherever have portrayed ESG investing like impact investing because it sells, that that, yeah. that link sells because oh, you build a better world through ESG investing. You're never going to do that because you're not investing in companies who are, who are trying to do that. You're just investing in companies that have mitigated ES and G risks in some way or are not exposed to them. 100%. Yeah, yeah. I, whoever came up with that term, because I, th- I think the problem is you see environmental and social and, and naturally that has connotations and, and you're like, it must be good. And then when you realize exactly what you said, it's just a risk framework, you're like, 
oh. <laughs> um anyway i'll stop there because i'm sure otherwise <laughs> you can talk about that all day um so last question on this section before we talk about circa 5000 is i guess like do you do you see a point in the future within the uk or globally where like impact investing becomes the norm uh, and whether it's pensionizers wherever the money's coming from that the default is it's going to an impact investment fund and the kind of second part to this question is what, what would shift the needle the biggest in that direction like is that an asset management level is that legislation yeah so the short answer to the first bit is yes i do i think that the if you take a step back from us as a business what we kind of observed what we want to happen and also what we think will happen is that impact will become like the third dimension of proper investing so risk return and impact and in the middle is the it, you know in the middle is the company that's optimized you know for 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 all great impact great risk return profile as well so at the moment we're just risk return but i think impact is becoming the third dimension you know how long it will take you know 5 10 15 20 years i don't know but i think that the the trajectory of the biz, of the industry is that impact will be has to be assessed and i think there is a reg, there is a regulatory factor to that in the EU and the UK, uh, probably the most advanced on that. You started to see things, and this is a bit boring and technical, but you've started to see things in the EU um, legislation, which means you can only label funds certain things if they pass a certain threshold. So it's called Article 9 is the top tier in the EU. Unhelpfully in the UK, it's going to be called something else. Um, but it's going to make, mean more or less the same things, we hope. But it will mean that only the top tier of funds in, in, in Europe can call themselves Article 9. There are currently only 40, I think, that pass that mark, which in terms of the whole fund universe is a tiny amount. So it will, it will at least allow customers to go, right, these are the proper funds that I've got to choose from. And I think that that will have a have a it will transform how existing incumbent asset managers think about new product development. And so I think there'll be there'll be uh, an aspiration to get more funds into that bracket, which will pull people to, you know, do things properly, I think, over time. But I think it's, it's a mixture of consumer demand and the, and the structural shifts of what people want from their finances is only going in one direction. That's, that's not changing at all. <clears throat> and the older our generation get and the more money we get, the more that can accelerate. And then the regulatory factor. And so I think that, Say, call it you know, 10, 15, 20 years, but I think that, it, that the future of the industry is to is to incorporate impact. And then it'll be very hard to justify why you're not investing in a business that that is trying to do something measurably good for the world at the same time. That's my hope. Awesome. Mine too. Mine too. Um, and then I guess like just to quickly say, if anyone interested in just the topics we've talked about so far or general economics, like as I said, I've been listening to your podcast for I think about a year now. It's called Impact Investing, but people should definitely check it out if they're if they enjoy it and want to learn more about this space. Because for me, it's like no nonsense, no BS, no fluff, but it's easy to understand as well. Like as someone who's not a finance grad or something, like it, it breaks down the way where I get it and I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> um, so definitely. Definitely check it out. Um, cool. So let's talk about Circa 5000. So I, I think it, you, you, we've touched a little bit, but like just, just to be crystal clear, like could you give a brief overview of, of what you do, like the products you offer? Yeah. So as you might have guessed, the only form of investing that we that we do is impact investing. So the the, the, the basic service is that um, anyone of any experience level when it comes to investing can uh, download our app, soon to be fully you know uh, web as well, um, and set up a uh, investment account either a, an ISA or GIA for themselves, they can invest for their kids with a JISA or they can invest for their long-term future with a pension. Um, and then uh, they select a theme that they want to invest in, people, planet, or people and planet together. Most people do people and planet together. They can do it at a risk level that they're comfortable with, high, medium, and low. And then uh, in the background, we've 
we've kind of put together the, the portfolios that are invested in hundreds of businesses around the world that are directly linked to the theme that, that you've invested in and, uh, you know, covering anything from, you know, yes, renewable energy companies, um, all the way through to uh, housing, education, health-related companies. Um, so multi-sector, hundreds of companies. So the idea is that you can have a fully diversified, fully global portfolio of impact investments, um, and uh, you can then invest for your long-term future. On the pension, we we touched on it uh, uh, briefly, but we've built a, a tool that allows people to track their old workplace pensions. We can find that for you. It's really automated. Um, and then people can bring them to us and invest them with impact. So they can find their old legacy pensions that are invested in all the companies they want to avoid, and then they can bring them over to us and start planning their financial future properly. Um, and so that's the that's the main, I'd say, investment account within those that we've focused on the past 12 months, and we probably will continue for the for the next 18, 24 months with, with that as the main focus. Nice. So as you said, like making it as easy and simple for people to use their money to do good in the world um, and build like the kind of future that they want to, want to be in. Yeah, exactly. And I think we've got we've got people that are very experienced investors. We've got people where it's the first time investing. Um, it's, it's designed to allow anyone to have a proper long-term portfolio. But the, the idea is that, um, that, that when you look behind the scenes at what's going on in the background, we're very transparent. You can see where your money's invested and the and, it, and it's built properly, like a, like a proper investment portfolio would be. Cool. So I want to take you, I guess, like understand a bit more about the backstory because you mentioned kind of like your path into career in finance um then the, the like looking at the morality and ethical like of uh, of how the investments work in it and that, that was the natural kind of push into impact investing when did you decide it was the right time to launch circa 5000 and and what did the initial concept like mvp look like yeah good question when was the right when did we realize it was the right time well i think there was a few factors in that one was matt and i started working on this in 2016 um, and then we left our jobs in mid 2018. So it probably took us two years to get to a point where we felt like we were comfortable, um, jacking in our jobs basically. And I think that there was a few factors in that one, you don't know what you don't know. And so you start, you know, trying to piece this together. And I, and I wouldn't say that in mid 2018, we still knew enough to launch a business. And in fact, if we knew what we didn't know, um, we probably wouldn't have done it. <laughs> Um, there's, there's, there was a huge leap of faith still. It got to a point with us though, that we couldn't really raise any money to start the business until we were full-time on it ourselves. And people wouldn't really take us seriously until we'd committed properly, which is logical and, and, uh, the way people should think about it. The other thing was a regulatory angle in the sense that myself and Matt were FCA regulated individuals at the companies we were already working at. So in order to launch this business, we needed to be regulated individuals for the business that we were launching, circa 5,000. We couldn't do both of those simultaneously. And so that, that was the, I think we'd, we'd done all we could do on the sides of our jobs um, to, to launch it um, before we actually, you know, could actually do it. So I think that that was the reason that was the timing and the, and the reason why. And then the, the MVP was, um, was a total embarrassment, I would say. Um, it was a terrible product. Um, it, looking looking back, it, it, you know, the, I think we we took a lot from like, you know, the all the startup books back then and all the podcasts of like just launch minimum viable product, iterate, da, da, da. and I think that's probably still the right approach, more or less. Depends on what industry you're in. Obviously, we were in a regulated industry, so we couldn't launch with like a real, real minimum viable product. It had to it had to function from a regulatory perspective. So we spent some time on that. But still, when we launched it, it broke all the time. It was unreliable. You know, it, it was, we learned a lot. It was a highly stressful way of launching a product, though, I would say. 
uh, looking back, but it was probably the right way to do it and probably the only way you can do it because I think there's probably a temptation to only launch when you think it's perfect and it's done. But until you get into get into people's hands, you don't actually know what people are going to say. You don't know what people want. You, you need to work with your customers and get your fee- get feedback and iterate. So all those things are true. But still, it was it was it was still a basic functioning version of what we've got right now. But it was you know it was highly highly basic and it looked terrible. But other than that, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you did it right. If you don't look back and <laughs> have that kind of view of <laughs> it looked terrible. Oh my god, what was that? But you know, it got to you got you to where you are today. In terms of where you are today, like, can you give an idea of like the scale of things right now? And so, I don't know if you, how you quantify it, users, customers, money being managed. Yeah, so uh, we're about one hundred and seventy thousand customers in the UK, um, and so um, we've uh, yeah we've grown that over the past really three years. I would say um, um, we basically had like a, a more a year off more or less from acquiring customers during during COVID because that hit us at a time where we didn't have funding um, and we had to kind of take a step back from marketing and, you know, we had to furlough loads of the team and I got very wrinkly during that period of time. I was actually just talking about it five minutes before I got on the podcast. So we've had, you know, two years of running at it. But for us, you know, really, I mean, everyone's going to say this right now, but um, it's not just growth at all costs for us and it hasn't been for a while. It's been more about uh, building a better product. It's quality of customer it's bringing in additional accounts, additional assets from our customers so that they can bring more of their financial life to us. And so that's been the focus of the past 12 months and that will continue. I mean, you may have heard on the podcast, but in the background for basically nearly two years, we've been building our own investment funds ourselves from scratch. Um, and so if you just take a step back, the the, the, the themes in the, in the app at the moment, there's like six to eight different ETFs, exchange-traded funds, but just investment funds um, that are in each which are provided by other big asset managers at the moment. And uh, we've been working uh, on our own fund range, which we'll be launching in the next couple of months. Um, so that's a huge moment for us. We've been working on it for two years. And so we've been, we've been doing things like that, which, which that's a huge growth moment for us. It's not necessarily a growth moment in user numbers necessarily, but it's a growth moment in terms of perception milestones of the business. It will be a growth moment for, uh, for, um, how how uh, how we perceive revenue assets etc. So um, that's something that's been a, a a huge effort, a huge project by a lot of people in the team, which is now coming to fruition. So there's a lot of work going on right now to make sure it's all finalised and uh, and ready for the next six to eight weeks. A little break from the show. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this. The good news is you can. Go and visit www.jobsforgood.io, where they only have four good companies on their platform, ranging from social justice to food waste to climate change and much more. You can filter jobs by impact area, preferred way of working, skill sets, and find the perfect company and position for you. So if you do one thing today, check out www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Oh, amazing. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> Looking forward to that coming out. Um, and you you talked about growth there. And my next question, like you talked earlier about kind of impact investing and the criteria that you look at in terms of like revenue attached to doing good in the world and then the general risk factors. Has that been a, a limiter for growth in the sense that you're doing more due diligence on companies um, than any other firm out there? And that maybe that means it's slower, you slower to add more people, like more companies in. So is, is that natu- is, is that a restrictor as well? Or has it been in the past? I think you could view it as a short-term restrictor, but a long-term um, 
accelerant, long-term defensibility, long-term, there's a better business because we've taken the approaches that we had to take. Um, I think that I wouldn't necessarily say it's been, it's been uh, slower for us, but it does require more work. You know, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no hiding that. I mean, if we were just a generic platform and we'd, we'd offer crypto, we'd offer any investment, whatever, you could spin those things up. But then we'd never have a brand, we'd never have a point of differentiation. We and I don't think the team would really believe in what we're doing or care what we're doing. So I think that yeah, it, it takes more care and attention. It takes a little bit more time in the early years, but then once you've built it, you know, and you've launched the funds and you've built a better product because of your approach. I think long term, that's the way to build a more sustainable business, both from the sustainable sustainability sense, but also from the we have a we have a business which is which is a, a be, from a, a better profile from a sustainable sense in the term in the sense that you know profitability scale etc is more sustainable for us as a business because of the approach we've taken, um, and so yeah, I think long term it will it will benefit us. No, very fair point, and. Um, you mentioned earlier in terms of users, like they're able to go on and, and choose themes and, and like where the money goes. Um, and I think you said it's like 170,000 users on the app. Are there any insights you've drawn from that in terms of like certain demographics that you see trends in? Like, it, you know, the majority of people are in this age range or this type of profile of demographic, or is it really diversified in terms of the people using using the app? Yeah. I think the, the the demographics today are still are still a little bit of a spill out in in how we initially marketed. So we we kind of tried to acquire ourselves as customers, and we built an app for ourselves effectively. So if you look at the the profile, mostly it's like thirty to forty year olds, which is like most of the team, and and um, it also kind of ties in with yes, the your structural attitudes to how you think about the world. You've probably built up some money that you can start to save. You might have an old pension or two, and so that's kind of the market in which we play in. What I would say, though, is that as we've started to expand, we have started to acquire older customers. Um, and I don't think this form of investing is necessarily restricted to an age demographic. Um, yes, I think that the issues are perhaps more pronounced amongst slightly younger demographics. But we're finding that a lot of our you know biggest advocates, biggest customers are in uh, demographics that are above the one that I've just given, you know, 30 to 40. So it also happens that they've got more money as well, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> it's a business. But, but I don't think it's confined to just, you know, I hate, I hate, I'm glad it's not used as much anymore, but like millennials, but I, um, I don't think it's just confined to millennials and, and, and Gen, and Gen Z. Um, I think that it's, it's cross demographic. And I think that the, the bigger we get, the better our product the more trusted we are because we've been around a little bit longer. It allows us to expand our target market a little bit because we're really playing into how people perceive their money and how people perceive the future that they want. And I don't think that's confined to, to a demographic. What I would say other, other things is the core demographic at the moment is quite gender split. It's pretty even on that. Um, they tend to be 30 to 40 year olds. Yeah, kind of based in and around the major cities of the UK. It's 85% out of London, 50, 15% in London. They tend to be people that have got been working for 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and they also tend to be people that have had a major life moment. You know, might have got married, might have bought a house, might have had a kid, that kind of thing. And they've started to think about the long-term financial future. Um, and so the the main the main common commonality amongst the customers is they're investing for the long-term. They're not trying to get rich quick. They're not trying to do short-term investing. Um, that's the proper way to approach it. And I think that the reason for the name, the reason for the extent the podcast is to to try and get out long-term thinking and, pr- and a proper principles of investing, proper ways of approaching your finances. And I think that's what we stand for as a business. Forget the impact angle for a second. 
we're trying to teach proper investing. We're trying to get people to think properly about their finances for the long term. Um, I think a lot of the industry is aimed at the opposite, which is damaging for people. Um, and so, and so, yeah, that's the that's kind of how the demographic and how it's slowly changing. I would say. Yeah, no, I was genuinely interested to see if there were any trends or if it was really split out. But into that, that final point you made, like absolutely, like I think in the in the UK, I, I don't know, I have any stats or anything, but I feel like we do a really poor job in terms of financial education. Like you come out of uni or, or school or whatever, you have no idea what to do with your money. You're told to go get a job, you probably blow it on stuff. That There's a very short-term mentality driven in consumers in general across anything. And, and when it comes to like how you deal with your finances, I, I always find you kind of just go to whatever your parents tell you and what they did. And that can be really mixed. Um, so to your point, yeah. It can be really mixed. And I think that the thing that you've got in the UK is, and I'm not saying this, this is bad or good, but, the main religion of the UK is, is, is property. Um, it's not the case in every other country. And I'm not saying it's a bad idea to get a house. I'm just saying it's not the only idea. Um, and there needs to be, I mean, the education in this country is absolutely criminal, especially on things that are genuinely useful for your life. Like there should be finances class, not maths. We shouldn't be having to learn Pythagoras theorem and laws of algebra, because let's be honest, right? even someone who works in financial services, I never used any of that stuff. Financial maths is basic. It's very basic, but it's actually real world maths. And so there should be like a finances class where you get explained about mortgages and, uh, and credit cards and overdrafts and, you know, what to do with your money and how to think about your money. And it's criminal that we don't get any of that. And I, I was a person who, I joined the grad scheme at Barclays was where I met Matt. And for the first eight weeks, we did a little bit of training to pass these like really what is seen in the industry is like simple exams. I failed those exams and I could barely work out a percentage on my calculator at the time. And I'm not stupid, but I just didn't have that, you know, knowledge. I didn't have that information. I obviously was fine after that, but I use that as an example because most people have no clue about any of this stuff. And we only know it could be worked in the industry. That's why we're passionate about trying to get the, you know, some basic principles out there. But the education system in this country, I mean, I could talk about this subject for, for days on end, but it, it, it just does not prepare us for the actual real world. And it doesn't give us a chance of, 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 uh, of setting ourselves up financially. It doesn't have to be that hard. It doesn't have to be a full GCSE. It just needs to be some basics that are given to people. Um, because what's education for if it's not preparing us for when we get into the you know the real world after school? Um, and so, yeah. So, yeah, sorry for that. No, no, me too. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, school should prepare you for life. And I think a lot of stuff you learn, like, I couldn't even remember most of it now. And I'm like, I've never probably applied anything since I left the classroom. Whereas like, wealth management is like something you should really know about and i think the other thing is you hear a term like wealth management you think oh that's for millionaires it's like well no anyone like everyone needs to know a bit about wealth management and like where you're going to put your money how you're looking after it long term what's going to how that's going to work for you and all that stuff but um yeah let's (laughs) let's leave that there um so um next question was going to be you know, very, very much see circa 5,000 as like a, either class as like a challenger brand or like carving out a new category in the investment space. Um, and so my question is like, what, what have you really focused on in terms of the brand, the company from like an external perception perspective, um, to be that challenger new category type? Yeah, I think what we focus on is probably a couple of things. One is, um, the, Impact is our DNA. It's not an add-on. It's not a marketing element of what we do. It's not 10% of what we do. It's the only thing that we will do ever. 
So that is central to to the brand. It's central to the language that we use. It's central to the visual identity. Um, that and proper long term investing. Um, and I think that making sure that people are aware that we genuinely mean what we what we do. We're a B, we're a B Corp. That's a way of you know uh, having something to point towards. We go look. We actually do operate the way in which we talk. Um, but the central component to the brand is that is, 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 is making sure people are aware of our DNA. And I think that allows us to build trust perhaps at an earlier stage than if we didn't have that and we were just a pure, you know, a generic investment platform. I think it would find it very, very hard. I mean, I personally would find it very, very hard. But I think being a generic investment platform, I don't know what you can do on marketing to make yourself stand out. I really don't because you're not going to be cheaper than Vanguard. That's just a fact. Um and there's plenty of people that have got good user experience in technology who are generic investment platforms at the moment. So I think that it allows us to cut through into a market that genuinely cares about these issues. Um, and so our customers invest with us because they want to make money, but they also care about the world. And then the, the other thing that we focused on, and we talked about this a lot on the podcast and in the language that we use is this is not like charity. It's not pure. It's, it's not you're going to give something up to do this. This is proper investment. We come from the investment industry. It's about it's about making money in a way that we can be proud of, but it is about making money still. You know, it, it is still investment. Um, and so articulating the the returns case, the long-term returns case of putting your money in the companies and the industries of the future is central to how we talk. So it, it, it's having those two things as the brand, which is we only do this form of investing. Um, here's what we stand for and why. And you, it, it's a it's a have your cake and eat it. Basically, is how we think about it. Um, you can do both. It's all in the implementation. It's all in the way in which you do it. And so that's that's the kind of brand and the kind of message that we want to get out. No, super clear. And, and I think you know it's something I've seen. And, and I think it's all about authenticity. And if it, if it is an authentic message and proposition you see that across the brand however you experience that brand if it's what you see you post on socials if it's the first time you log into the app and download it and your journey through that listen to the podcast and, and that's for me is like there's a consistent authenticity across what circa 5000 are doing which is going to win out short and long term um one chat to you a little bit about your your kind of personal founder journey tom um so you know five years um first time founder to my knowledge um what have you found most difficult about the role? Uh, and that could be the stage, either early doors, trying to do everything to what you're doing now, or it could be something completely different. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it doesn't get easier; it just gets different. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I think there's always a temptation to think, oh, when we get to this point, it'll be it'll feel a little bit easier. It doesn't. It just it just feels it just hard in a different way that you can't explain to your kind of slightly younger self. But I don't know. I think. I came from, I wasn't really suited to big corporate environments fully. That's why I think I had to leave. But um, nothing can fully prepare you for the the uncertainty, um, the risk. You know, you, you've come from a very, very safe environment, even working in investment banking, asset management, where it's, the perceptions is quite cutthroat. Um, it can be, but I mean, it's still, it's still a, a big, safe corporate job. Um, and um, you've got the big, you know, comforting cushion of the big organization behind you and then you get put into a world where you are the organization and uh things don't move if it's not if it's not for you there's like you know you have to, radical ownership the the levels of risk that you have to take very very uh pronounced in the really early days um things can wipe you out an email can wipe you out um an email can mean that you can't make payroll um and it's dealing with that level of stress dealing with that level of uncertainty it's not for everyone and it's not the sugar-coated 
Instagram version of entrepreneurialism. It's not like that at all. You have to be um, you have to be very very tough. I think or learn to be tough to to do it um, because it's it's really fucking hard. Um, and there's just no even though I love what I do and I'm clearly passionate about the the subject. Building a business, any business, is hard. If it was easy, everyone would do it and everyone would develop a massive successful business, successful in whatever way you want to perceive success. But it's it's really, really hard. Um, and you have to learn. Me, me Matt, and I've got another, one of our friends, Dave, who, who is a founder of another startup, we call it good hour, bad hour, because it's just like that every day, every single day. Still, still like that every day. And your job is to maintain the, uh, the level basically stay in the middle don't overindulge in good news and don't get too down on the bad news either just deal with things very very rationally and very calmly keep making strides forward and as as long as you're alive you can make progress basically so be stay alive make progress and stay try and stay as calm as you possibly can despite it being exceptionally difficult and look it's it, it's uh it's uh the 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 more you speak to founders that are even more advanced, way more advanced than us, more scaled, you know, 10 years in, whatever. I had a conversation with a guy who, he uh, he's the founder CEO of a multi-billion pound uh, B2B software business. Uh, he's, he's, from, uh, he's from Manchester, so he's, he's from, you know, kind of where I'm from. But he, uh, I had a conversation with him, like a one-on-one with him, and he said that um, – your job, you, you will be in a state of perpetual terror every day, basically. And he's he was like 12, 13 years in. He's like, it doesn't go away. Um, it's it's the same. Every single day, you're in a state of perpetual terror. And it's your job to kind of just get on with it, basically. And maintain a happy um, and positive outlook because there'll be times where nobody else is positive other than you. And you have to keep it going and turn everyone else around. And the moment he told me about the perpetual terror thing, I started to enjoy it even more. And I enjoy it because it is a challenge and I like sport and there's an element of sport to this. But but I started to enjoy it even more because I was like, this feeling of it's going to get easier is is not reality. It's going to get hard. It's going to be hard and it's going to stay hard. So just sit in that feeling and, 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 and you know, dig into it and enjoy it. You know what I mean? Like it's still a, it's still a, an element of, it's our decision to choose this hard thing to do. You know, we're, we're fortunate enough where we've had a decision to make to start a company. You know, a lot of people, most people in the world are not in that position. So recognize that and just dig in and carry on. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's tough, but I smile and I keep I keep going. <laughs> yeah. Oh, lots of good advice in there. Yeah, and yeah, you know, I, I run two really small businesses and it's, it's just constant up and down. Your job as a founder yeah. is to stay as level as you can be and make sure that everyone's still like aligned with that mission and direction that you want to head in as a company. Um, but I struggle. Yeah. Like my 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 biggest weakness is like always focusing on the negatives and what can be improved. Which I think a lot of people yeah. do. So my question to you on, on the flip side is like when you look back on, on everything you've done so far, what's been like the the proudest moment, the, the like standout moment for you so far? Let me think about that. I'm a person that. <laughs> You reminded me then of a, of a Gordon Ramsay quote I heard once. I don't know if I heard him say it or it was like, don't tell me what, what the good things are. Tell me what the bad things are, basically. It's like, I don't care what's good. I already know what's good. Tell me what's bad and I'll solve that problem. I'm kind of similar in the sense that I'm not actually that proud of anything that we've done so far. I know that sounds ridiculous and it sounds negative. I, don't, I actually don't feel negative about it, but 
I everything that we've done that's perceived as good, I expected to get that. I, that's fully expected. You know, I expect things to be good, and I don't. And when you ask me what's the proudest moment, I can't even name one thing. Now, that some psychologists can analyze that and <laughs> say that I'm absolutely insane. But um, for me, it's I, I'll, I'll pick out one moment. The, the, the thing that I like is when we do customer events and someone comes up to me and says, you've made investing you know, straightforward to me. I would never would have done this. I've now got 10 grand in my account. It's going towards a house deposit or it's going towards my kid's education or whatever. Those are the moments that make it very, very real for me. Um, and I really enjoy those moments. Um, otherwise, I'm just trying to push things forward and live in the future. I will genuinely feel pride when those when, the, when, our, when our five funds launch in the next two months. Yeah. I think that is that is a, that is a major moment for us, and it maybe maybe doesn't seem that major to people that are not from the from the industry, but to have built from scratch with the small team that we've got these funds that are all really really great from an impact perspective. I'm so proud of what the team have done on those to get them out into the world and build our own fund infrastructure. It's like proper big company stuff that we've done at a really early age and at a really early stage. And I think most of the asset management industry, wealth management industry, didn't think we would be able to do anything like that at this stage. That would be a major moment for me because I know how much work's gone into that from the team. And I think we'll be really, really proud of them. And that's the way I think about that moment is phase one of the business will then be done. We've built everything major that we want to that we want to build from a user experience perspective, an account offering, the pension automation stuff, the ECS that we launched, and then it's a it's a case of scaling is phase two, scaling all those things, and so I think that will be a proud moment for me. Um, but yeah, it's the customer moments when I meet customers. I would say that would highlight. Um, there was one particular now I've thought of a moment. Sorry, I have to finish this, but we did a customer event. I think this was it was just post COVID when you could start doing events again. I can't remember when that was, but. Um, there was like a hundred people came to one of our customer events and someone had come down from Aberdeen for that event. A customer of ours who got invited and come down from Aberdeen, especially for that event. And she basically made a beeline for, um, for us to tell us about, you know, you know, she'd never invested before and she's doing it for the first time. And she feels like this whole world has been opened up to her. That was a, that was a, that was a great moment, I think for, for the team. So those moments, because that's who we're doing it for. Ultimately, you know, we're not doing it for any other reason. It's for, it's for people to build their own long-term wealth because Matt and I both come from backgrounds where no one invested, no one knew anything about finances. You know, we, we didn't think it was for us. We didn't think we had the tools. And, and, and so to, 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 to be able to provide people with that is, is, uh, is, is, is a positive feeling. Yeah, no, I, I, I've asked that question quite a bit in the show, and I, I think it pretty much is always the same answer. Like, it's, it's seeing the the visible impact on someone's life that you can have through what you're building. Um, not, nothing will beat that. Um, final section is talking a bit about just like yeah, building a, a tech for good company, growing out the team, um, and yeah, mine says yeah, come up to the five year mark as a company. The company's still pretty lean. Like I was looking on, I think it was LinkedIn, it looked like 25, 30 people. I just wondered, is, is that representative of like you and Matt and how you want to run a business, like high potential, high performing lean team? Or is that just representative of like the market and you don't need this huge bloated team to to be successful? Yeah, a little bit of both, but more the former. I think that, you know, that there's a, I think we, we've learned the team has been bigger in the past. And I, and I think that, We've learned that bigger doesn't mean better. I think that I'd much sooner have a small, high-performing, highly paid team um, where everyone is a proper performer, everyone is a is an A player, and we're getting a lot of work out of them. Because every time you introduce more people, 
and you start to expand, there's another node of communication and, and, and it can break down. And so like a, a Premier League football squad is like 20, 25 people, say. Um, and um, sorry to use football analogies. <laughs> it's, it's one of the only languages one of the only languages I know how to speak. But th- there's something about the small team that can achieve a lot. Yeah. And there's also like, th- th- we're not, this is not the perfect parallel because um, of what I'm about to mention, but there are hedge funds managing tens of billions with like 20 people. You know that you, it's a there's a little bit of ego thing in building teams and building and building bigger teams and some companies definitely need to do it and some companies have achieved massive scale and done it exceptionally exceptionally well but I think having a having a high performing team I think then you can scale that team more efficiently when you choose to do it because you've embedded this culture you know more about who you want to hire because you have this really strong performing culture. Um, and then you can be m- much more successful about who you bring into that environment. Um, and so it's it's been it's been intentional, and I think the an aspiration for us is to is to keep it like that. I, I think that not necessarily keep it this small, but you know keep it um, keep it uh, high performing and don't ne- unnecessarily high if we don't if we don't need to do it. Nice. Yeah, it's good to hear that because I think it's been, again, romanticized too much the last two years that you need to grow, you need to add loads of headcount yeah. and it's caused a lot of issues this last six, 12 months. Um, you obviously just shared kind of your principles of like hiring and how you want to build a team. So your next question is like, what, what advice do you have for actually how you're going about doing that? Like when it comes to the hiring and what you look for in people, how you get those people to through the door? Yeah, it's really hard because I mean, I've become, I think I've become better at interviewing and better at judging people as uh, judging characteristics. I think that over time, as we've got, as we've done it and we failed at it and we've not got the right people or or we have got some of the right people and why did they work out and why did not they not work out? It's, It's also an iterative process. I think that what we've become better at is, is, uh, asking genuine and genuine questions in interviews. So people know what we expect of them when they come in. And if they like the sound of that, that's one element of it. And then they obviously have to get in, and then and you have to make a judgment on them when you know when they're in. Um, there's the Netflix high fast fire fast. It sounds a little bit brutal, but there's there's an element of reality in that, which I think is try and make as good a decision on the way in. And then all, both sides have an honest conversation about the reality of what it's going to be like, and then the reality of what it is like when they're in, and whether that's something that both parties kind of want to want to go forward with. Because we do expect a lot, we do demand a lot. We also don't treat people like shit. We we we're not a political company. We it's very flat. There's no hierarchy. We're very honest. You know, we're very transparent. We treat each other with kindness, with respect, etc. But we expect you know a lot in return. That can sound great to some people. It can sound like a living hell to some other people. And so it's just like an honest conversation with people. And so I think we've become a lot better at that over time. But I think I think it's hard to to make people. Like if I'm speaking to another founder who's right at the start of the journey, you've kind of got to go through that journey a little bit yourself and you've kind of got to know what kind of company and culture you want and recruit for that. And I think that what happened over the past couple of years is, um, and we put this politically correct in a second, but it became more about what work can do for you versus what you can do for work. Um, and I think that, unfortunately, the opposite is true for what startups need. You need... You need sol- you need soldiers basically that are coming in to do. A- Reed Hoffman calls it like a tour of duty. Basically, it's like, it is kind of like that. You need to get stuck in. You need to work. Um, there's no way. Of- there's no two ways about it. Yes, you can get all the flexibility you want. You can work from wherever you want. You know, in- you know, with- you know, within reason, <laughs> as long as you've got Wi-Fi. But um, but but we're here to make a company a success. We're here to build a business that's not going to be easy street. If you want easy street. 
well, I was going to say you can go and work for one of, one of the big tech companies, but now they're all laying people off as well. But you can go, go and work in an industry where it, it's already profitable. They're a mega business. You might not get the, the 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 flexibility. You might not get you know equity. You might not get you might not get the challenge that you want. But if you want all that, then you then you need to come from to a startup environment, and it's you're not going to get all the major corporate benefits that you're going to get. Um, it's the reality, I think. And I think that for, in, during COVID, it was like. Well, we can have all the, the 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 comfort of the big corporate, but we can get all the the uh, benefits of a startup. And I think the reality is, is that those two things are not compatible. And I think that people are now um, actually having that honest conversation with people. Um, and I think that as a consequence, recruiting will get better because people can honestly go, actually, I don't I don't want that headache of of working at a company like that. Um, that's totally fine. No one's saying that that's not fine. Um, and some people can go, actually, I want, I want the challenge more than anything else. Therefore I've got to go and work for a company like that. So, so yeah, um, that's my long rant about, about hiring. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, a lot of it resonates with me. I, I think the two things I'll pick up on are, um, in terms of the challenge, I, I think a lot of people do want that. I think the realization I've seen the last two, three years, especially is that it's, it's much easier when you work on something you truly believe in. Because I, th- I think there's lots of places you go to where you get paid pretty well. You know, there's decent amount of flexibility. Progression, you know, career progression is pretty good. The differentiator for me right now is like, do I really believe in this mission? Is this going to keep me here? Like, am I going to go the hard yards because I really care about what I'm doing, or is it just a job? And I think that's the shift I've seen. Um, the second thing is like, I, I think there's no one way to do this. The, the advice, what you said, the main thing I took away from that is like, just the the quicker you can get to a clear proposition of like, this is what we are, this is what we offer, the better, because then you're not trying to attract every single person to work for your business. You need the people (laughs) want to work there and want to work in that way. And that's not going to be for everyone, but the clearer you can be with that, the better. And that's an easier thing to go with market, to go to the market with. So, um, yeah, awesome. Well, look, Tom, it's it's been such a pleasure. Like I really enjoyed chatting on this, chatting today and and the few little rants we've both been on, um, for, (laughs) for for anyone that wants to follow Circa 5000, um, where are you most active on socials as a company? Instagram. We've been doing more TikTok recently, um, mainly podcast clips, but Instagram and LinkedIn, um, I would say we're probably the most active on. And if you want us to cover any uh, topics on the podcast, you can email us. Um, <laughs> Matt Man's the email. It's a podcast at circa5000.com. And we'll try and cover it in an episode. We do Q&A episodes every few weeks. So um, we're always up for trying to tackle topics that people want to hear. Perfect. Cool. Well, look, time to say goodbye. But yeah, thanks again for coming on and um, I'll catch you soon. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed it. Thanks, mate. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave a review. Better yet, tell a friend about the show. The more people we can get involved, the more hope we have for making the world a better place. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril Al-Sahami and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.